Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And Google Play. This is the home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is a Friday. There is a rail strike going on, of course. So, of course, uh, everybody's having trouble getting around. But uh, I think most people are so used to it now, they don't even bother marking down the day when there's a strike on. There was a strike on yesterday, but don't know what it was. There was a strike the day before. That was definitely a rail strike. Um, there's always strikes going on. Uh, there was that big day of action, wasn't there, when 500,000 people supposedly took to the streets to determine why this Tory government doesn't want to give them any more money. Um, I don't think anybody cares anymore, do they? Maybe you do. Let me know. 0344-499-1000. Let's see what Rishi Sunak said to Piers Morgan last night about the nurses and the dispute that they're in and whether he is ever going to give them any more money. Look, I would love, right, I would love to give the nurses a massive pay rise. Who wouldn't? Certainly would make my life easier, wouldn't it, right? Uh, of course I would love to do well, that give, if well, I give could. Give them one, then. So why is that tough, right? Why is it tough? It's, it's about choices. So right now, there's a record amount of money going into the NHS record amount. And in spite of those difficult decisions that we had to make to stabilise the economy, which uh, were the right decisions, we found more money for the NHS and social care, because I believe that was the right thing to do. So right now, money going to the NHS, biggest it's ever been. But we have to put that in lots of different places. There's six rights there, right? He's doing that thing that Tony Blair used to do, say right all the time, because it makes me sound, you know, blokey. Well, it doesn't actually make himself blokey. One of the favourite points of the actual interview uh, was when um, Piers Morgan just looked him in the eye and went, you're stinking rich, aren't you? And he kind of didn't quite know how to respond, but he admitted that he was sort of comfortable. Fortunate, I think, was the word he used. Um, John Ashmore's here, uh, editor of CapEx. There's a funny sort of fascination with Rishi Sunak's wealth, which I think is a very British obsession, isn't it? I mean... Piers Morgan actually, I think, used the words, you know, I don't hold it against you that you've got a lot of money. Well, why should he? You know, I mean, you shouldn't have to be told we don't hold it against you. But it is a kind of curiosity, isn't it, of the British um, sort of system. But we want to see his tax uh, affairs. We want to know whether he's benefited from anything. We want to know just how rich he is. I think the tax affairs thing is a weird import from America, um, particularly Mm. because of all this stuff about Donald Trump's taxes. It's a bit like that first hundred days thing, which is a... FDR thing that has now become a kind of mainstay of British political coverage. But yeah, where we do diverge from the States is in the attitude to wealth and financial success. Mm. Over there, it's celebrated. It's seen as a great thing here. As you say, people are are pretty suspicious about it. Um, 
and it, it there's no escaping that it is a problem for him it's not just that he's rich it's that i think people and you see this among kind of pollsters and guys who talk to voters you know week in week out one of the things they hear is that things like well i don't know if he really understands what it's like to be on a waiting list yeah or to use the NHS because I don't think he uses it, you know, stuff like that. That I think is more of a problem than wealth per se. Mm. It's being seen as kind of out of touch or not understanding the experiences of normal people. I always say, I don't think the British people have a problem with sort of posh people or whatever. Look, Boris was prime minister. David Cameron was prime minister. Winston Churchill was born in a palace mm. and he's probably our most popular prime minister ever. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything necessarily about being kind of upper class or, you know, a bit of toffee that, that um, prevents you from being political, politically successful. It's just the combination of kind of very, very large personal wealth at a time when so many people are struggling. Yeah. I think it makes it particularly difficult for him. I think that is a problem. Um, and there is there is a section of the left that does push this particular agenda as well and make out actually that if you are wealthy, that you're somehow evil and you're somehow mm. downtrodding uh, everybody beneath you and you just don't care about anybody yeah. and you're a horrible individual. But anyway, uh, let's talk about what he does about the strikes because... Obviously, as Piers said to him last night, he's, he's holding the line. He's not looking as though there's going to be any kind of settlement anytime soon. There are some who think the railway workers will settle soon. I'm not sure if that's true or whether you think that. But, I mean, will this in the end be the sort of defining moment of Rishi Sunak's premiership, whether he deals with this right? Oh, that's a very interesting question. There's so many problems affecting the country at the moment that deciding what the defining one will be i think it's quite difficult for me at the moment it's that it's linked to the strikes and it's the almost what seems to me like the terminal decline of the nhs you look at mm. perhaps we'll come on to this but you look at how slow it is to get an ambulance now how long it takes to get seen try and get a gp appointment you know i had this the other day i was basically told to go to a and e yeah which is only going to make things worse i think the kind of the state of the nhs may be the abiding one um but yeah i mean this, as for the strikes i think you mentioned the railway workers there. It's interesting. I think the situation is quite different depending on who you're talking about. Yeah. So that includes in terms of public support. I don't think the public, last time I looked, the public don't no longer support railway workers. No. They don't support the strikes. But also it's getting to the point where the strikes become counterproductive. They're losing so much money from not work, from these strike days that even if they got a bumper pay, um, uh, pay improvement, it would only really cover the money that they've yeah. lost. So it becomes, yeah, it looks for all the world as though it's, you know, the union leaders in the transport unions showboating and trying to, you know, affect political change rather than really representing their members' needs. And I think they're also driving so many people away from using the railways that, in fact, right, they're, they're yeah. signing their own death warrant in a way because... This if, is, if, yeah, this is it, isn't it? I think they'll, they should be careful what they wish for because post-COVID... Uh, pattern of rail use has changed. The revenue is is lower. Mm. There's no escaping that. And if it, uh, I think the fear is that, like you say, it will lead to just a reduction in services, and that will mean fewer jobs for their members. So ultimately, it will be end up being counterproductive. With nurses, I think it's a totally different kettle of fish. I think the public are much more supportive of nurses. They realise they've been through several years of pretty low pay increases on the whole. Um, that they've worked extraordinarily hard during COVID. And also that it's just a really thankless job working in the NHS at the moment. It's so overburdened, you know, there's so much um, so much demand, uh, too few beds, and all these problems that we've spoken about before uh, on the show and, you know, various other places. Um, so I think there it's more difficult for the government 
going up against the nurses is not a position you want to be in as a prime minister. Um, and my own view is I think they should have probably been a bit more proactive and not just said, oh, it's up to an independent pay board, got in there and really tried to resolve this as a bit more quickly. Yes, because it has almost now reached a, the point of no return. You're not quite sure which way out yeah. there is for anybody. Um, finally, let's just talk about um, the House of Lords, an extraordinary uh, costing uh, story that came out this morning. £7 million for a door uh, to go on yeah. basically the front of the House of Lords, which is where the peers go in and out. I've actually been in and out of that door myself. I can't imagine why refurbing it costs seven million quid. It was going to cost two million. I mean, only in the public sector could something that was going to cost two million end up costing nearly four times as much. It's baffling to me. Um, I had a security door put in in the building I live in and it cost 10 grand. And I thought, that was pretty extortionate. That is quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, you would, yeah. You would go, blimey, that's a lot of money. That's seven yeah. million. <laughs> yeah. Seven million. I guess, I imagine it costs so much because it's an old protected sort of building and they have to do all sorts of assessments and things and be extremely careful about damaging the brickwork or whatever it is. Um, but it just made me think as well that when they, if they come to refurbish Parliament in its entirety, I mean, the bill is going to be absolutely yeah. astronomical. The figure I saw last quoted... I might need to check up on this, but it was five billion pounds to just to, re to refurbish Parliament. Uh, I should say it is really unsafe. There's wires hanging out there, mice everywhere. It needs a revamp, but I'm a bit concerned that it's going to be absolutely eye-watering. And it's just going to feed into this perception that Westminster is a world apart, that, you know, peers or MPs or politicians in general are somehow feeding at a kind of gilded trough, uh, not available to us mere yes. mortals. I mean, it is ludicrous. On a door. And I mean, that's the thing. I mean, as you say, who knows what the whole refurb is going to cost? There's an awful lot of doors inside the House of Parliament, but there we are. Listen, John, great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Have a good weekend. John Ashmore, editor of CapEx there, uh, with his thoughts on the £7 million door at the House of Lords. And also, of course, Rishi Sunak and his first 100 days. If you've seen the interview with Piers Morgan, I'd love to know what you make of it. Did he actually give anything away? Did he actually impress you? Is he anything more than a kind of a caretaker manager figure? That's the problem, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. Gary Glitter, by the way, uh, has just been released from prison. Uh, we'll bring you more details on that as to where, when and why uh, coming up. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Breaking news, as we said just before, uh, is that Gary Glitter has been released from prison. We will tell you uh, precisely why that has happened and where that has happened. Disgraced pop star Gary Glitter has been freed from jail after serving half of his 16-year sentence for sexually abusing three schoolgirls, according to the Press Association. Uh, obviously, there'll be people who are very concerned about where he's likely to be. Always difficult with these kind of stories because at the end of the day, uh, some people don't believe that he should ever be let out. Some people believe that he'll always be a danger to society. Uh, but, you know, of course, the judicial system works in mysterious ways, as we all know. But let's talk now about something completely different because uh, there's a great headline in The Sun this morning uh, in which it says, Road to Hell. And this is because drivers in the West Country uh, this weekend are going to involve themselves in a rather circuitous route to get around um, a, a 200 mile stretch of roadworks. And this is down uh, sort of west of Wells. It's between Wells and Cheddar. And basically drivers are going to have to go on a 40 mile detour which is going to take about 90 minutes just to get around these roadworks. Now, if you're out and about today, there is a rail strike going on. So if you're driving, you will probably know that it's pretty awkward to get around already. 
there's probably already all sorts of traffic jams around the M25 and elsewhere in the country. But let's talk to Simon Calder, our travel guru, the man that knows everything there is to know about where to go and how to get there. Uh, he is, of course, from The Independent. Simon, a very good morning. Uh, Mike, yes, uh, we're talking here about, would you believe, the Independent Republic of Rodney Stoke. Is that now, right? That might sound like, well, it might sound like a, a late night presenter on a rival station. But uh, <laughs> in fact, it's the uh, village in Somerset where all this is happening. And um, I've had a check on the uh, local uh, roads and you don't need to go for 40 miles. Yes, it is 190 metres of um, roadworks. But actually, you can, do a, a, you can do a cut through round the back of the, would you believe, Rodney Stoke National Nature Reserve. Wow. No, I didn't know there was one either. But you'll be able to see some nature while you're um, stuck in a queue. But it is absolutely ridiculous. It does show how, um, well, that a little bit of disruption can cause a massive amount of pain for people. But of course, it's the same on the railways. And would you believe, as things stand next weekend, even though there's no strikes, Anybody wanting to go from Scotland to London on a train won't be able to because they're closing not just the West Coast Main Line, but the East Coast Main Line as well. Why? Uh, engineering works. Um, and in fact, I do understand that um, they may be possibly about to not um, close the East Coast Main Line. But at the moment, if you go online and you think, oh, OK, I'm in Edinburgh, I'm in Glasgow, I'd like to go to uh, London. Well, you won't be able to as things stand. It is all a bit ridiculous. We want some certainty, but we can't even get any certainty about going from Scotland to England next weekend, let alone when the next uh, strikes are going to be. Well, I mean, it's just the, the nightmare sort of goes on, doesn't it? Because here we are into a new year. We're into a second month. We're into February of 2023. The rail strikes are still ongoing. We've got another one going on today. Uh, yesterday's trains supposedly were running, but nobody's really exactly sure quite what's going on. Today, I see that uh, you've put out very helpfully, most trains in England are cancelled. Some operators are running normally, which presumably means it's just very delayed and you don't really know whether you're going to get where you want to go. Well, to be fair, the um, operators who are running trains, and we're talking here about LNER uh, from London to Leeds to York to Newcastle and to Edinburgh, um, as well as GWR, um, who are just doing their standard strike day London Swindon Bristol train, um, those are going pretty well considering. There's also um, some trains all day to Stansted Airport. Bad luck if you're trying to get to Gatwick. No possibility of getting there on a train. Um, but what's the, the, the um, really tricky one is commuters on Southwestern Railway. Now, this company wasn't supposed to be involved in the train drivers' strike. Right. They had some drivers who work in the depot who um, uh, are going on strike, but the main drivers who drive the 515 to Woking from Waterloo are not going on strike. However, they're not crossing picket lines, some of them either. So we've got 300 cancellations, even at a train operator, which isn't supposed to be on strike. As you say, it's an absolute mess. And anything, you know, it's just driving people onto the roads, yeah. only to find that... Um, Things go uh, tango uniform in the uh, Rodney Stoke area. Well, it's not just the Rodney Stoke areas. I'm sure you're probably aware, Simon. I mean, any single piece of road in this country that you take to your uh, car to, to go on is likely to be shut at any time. I mean, I had a horrendous weekend a couple of weekends ago. My son and I wanted to go out to the local screw fix. Other uh, stores, of course, are available for that kind of material. Um, we were looking for a chainsaw, <laughs> believe it or not. And um, I took 
took him out in the car. We got about five yards down the road uh, to be hit with a massive traffic jam. Uh, so we had to completely reroute and replan the day because we thought, I know, we'll, we won't go to the screw fix we were going to go to. We'll go to another one. And it basically, uh, what would have been a normal sort of 20 minute there and back, buy a chainsaw, come back, start chopping wood. It took about two hours. And this is just in, you know, a rural part of Sussex. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, it just shows the absolute uncertainty that seems to surround so many journeys in this country at the moment. And of course, um, probably the overall level of disruption on the roads isn't that much different from normal. But because we're all really sensitised to the fact that uh, any journey seems at the moment fraught with all kinds of um, difficulties. Mm. Um, I, I think we just sort of, yeah, pick that thing, that sort of thing up, which in normally you know, might be a once a year isolated thing and, and, and kind of conclude that these things are happening more often. But I do have a solution for the Rodney Stoke problem. Go on. And they do this a lot. Don't in, go to the West Country. Like Kirk- no, of course, it's absolutely beautiful. You're very close to the lovely Cheddar Gorge there. And the I've been to that Cheddar Gorge. Yeah, it's nice there. Uh, very good. Um, anyway, uh, so what we should be doing is what they do in places like Kyrgyzstan and Peru and so on. When they have landslides and things, your bridges are washed out or whatever, they run buses up to the impediment. Then you walk around it and then you get on another bus they've sent in the opposite direction. This could be the revolution, which actually could yeah. um, help you. And that's your all, that's, all, that's well. all fine and dandy, Simon. But unfortunately, your communist travel plans are full apart when you ask people where they actually want to go because they're not all going to the same place. So you either have a bus that stops ah. at every house in Britain uh, or I'm afraid uh, you'll have to come up with a better plan. OK, well, lots of people already do this. Would you believe going from the Isle of Wight to mainland Britain, um, they will have two cars. I've talked to a number of them. They have a car to drive them to the port and then they just get a foot passenger fare because it's yeah. cheaper. And then they've got another car parked on the other side. OK, so, they so your new plan to save the planet is for everyone to have two cars. Yes. Brilliant. Excellent. Make sure they're both diesel as well while you're at it. Now, the other, before I let you go, fascinating story from north of the border that I see on your Twitter, uh, that Inverness has now got its own airport Ah. railway station. But unfortunately, as it would be expected, because it's Britain, there's a bit of a flaw, isn't there? It's a bit of a fly in the ointment. Uh, yes. So um, great excitement. Inverness Airport Station opened today. The first service right. was at 10 to 7. It was a connecting bus to take you <laughs> from the station, the 900 metres to the actual airport terminal. I mean, now the trouble is no trains had arrived by then. So it was a completely pointless exercise. <laughs> um, first train finally arrived at 11 minutes past seven. And I'm sure everybody was very happy. It's going to take you, they estimate, about 12 minutes to walk. But I have no that some people who turn up at airports do occasionally have luggage with them. So it's going to be exciting. Anyway, it was only £42 million. Great. So we can all agree it was a terrific idea. Forgive me for asking, but I mean, why, if they're going to put a railway station next to an airport, why don't you actually put it next to the airport as opposed to 900 metres away from it? There's an alert. Oh, there's an alert that's gone on. Oh, apparently we can't have him answer that question. Is that Nicholas Sturgeon's censors have come in, apparently, because that's too embarrassing a question to answer. Um, put that man in prison, but don't put him in a woman's prison, whatever it is. Uh, this See is Talk it, TV. Hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots for us to talk about coming between now uh, and one o'clock when Ian Collins will be along, of course. Don't forget Plank of the Week tonight, uh, plus 
Following that, at 8 o'clock, it's a Friday night with Nadine, and it's Nadine Dorries interviewing Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister, of course. Last night, uh, we had Rishi Sunak. We're going to be hearing from him in this hour, because Mary Wakefield is here, commissioning editor at The Spectator. She's written a rather tongue-in-cheek, interesting piece about how to improve the Metropolitan Police. God knows somebody must come up with some ideas for it. Uh, We'll be asking her what she makes of his ability, this particular Prime Minister, to identify what a woman is, which shouldn't be particularly remarkable, but in this day and age, unfortunately, it is rather because if you're in the Labour Party, it's finding it very, very difficult to be able to ask even the question without making people squirm. So Keir Starmer, of course, saying very complicated. Uh, I don't think we should be getting into that sort of debate here now. Uh, but anyway, we'll be bringing you up to date uh, with what's happening uh, with little Evie. You might remember uh, she's a little girl that needed an operation that was cancelled the last time the nurses went out on strike. We've got a rail strike going on today as well. We'll also be talking about your neighbours because according to a new study, uh, one third of us living in this country don't even know the names of our neighbours. I've had loads of people sending me uh, very interesting little tweets and um, um, uh, messages saying, oh, we know the names of our neighbours, so it must be wrong. Well, no, you do understand that when I say one third of people, that means not everybody, it means one in three. So if you know the names of your neighbours, that's great, but the people who live two doors down from you might not know the names of their neighbours, and that's how the thing works. So we'll be talking about that uh, a little bit later on as well. Also, Gary Glitter uh, has been freed uh, after serving sort of half of his sentence, so we'll be trying to bring you up to date with that as well as to where exactly he's going to be, uh, whether he's going to be monitored uh, and what we should be doing about it, if anything. But let's say a very good morning right now to Mary Wakefield from The Spectator. Mary, very good morning. Welcome to the Independent Republic. Hi. Hello. Hi. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm just going to bring up another point of order in because I didn't realise there was a clean air zone in Birmingham. Apparently there is one now. Uh, it costs £8 a day. So according to Steve, if you go for a night out and drive home in the early hours of the next morning, it costs you £16. I had no idea they had one there, but there we are. Anyway, listen, I, I've enjoyed reading your piece in The Spectator about uh, improvements that can be made to the police. I realise that, uh, you know, they're not entirely serious, but but you made some very interesting points about... We're always told there aren't enough police officers, but every now and again, you wonder where they all come from. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I don't have obviously any answers, but um, it does seem to me fascinating that um, you see them pooled in groups around London at at the same time. um, They say there's a massive shortage of police officers and there's this massive recruitment and retention problem. So I suppose I feel very sorry for them, actually, because it seems to me something's gone wrong in police management. Mm. if This is the way employed. So, you know, we focus on the bad apples um, and then the, the, the sort of terrible police officers that are getting through the net into recruitment. But what's happening in management? I think people aren't asking about that enough. No, because they seem to be, every time they get an opportunity to make a mistake, they seem to be making it. I mean, it's almost been yeah. one story a week now for the best part of the last sort of six months. This week's story was uh, that they're reaching out apparently to people who have been um, sort of kicked out of the police in the past for, for misconduct because they yeah. need experienced police officers. Well, surely would you not go and look for people who hadn't been kicked out and who had maybe retired rather than looking for people who had been kicked out, going through 3,000 of them and finding sort of half a dozen of them that were actually all right? I know, it's terrible, isn't it? I mean, the other thing is that I was reading recently to my astonishment that they're still conducting um, online interviews yeah. for the Metropolitan Police. So they phase that out in other forces across the country, but... With the Met, they've still been doing that online. And we all know how much you can gauge about a person online. You know, not very much, really. Right. Well, you were making the comparison, were you not, with online dating apps? You know, if you really wanted to find out something about someone and you wanted to go out with them, you might not actually just trust what they say online, which is what the police are apparently doing in order to recruit people. I know, exactly. I mean, I'm not in the dating business myself, but all my friends who are... 
say it's on say it's just you know it's a terrible way of telling someone's of sound character or mm. anything else you need to know yeah but i mean in, in all seriousness it is a, a crisis in, in the metropolitan police certainly if, if not in several other police forces as well what do we actually do? Because it seems, I mean, some people have said, why not break it down like they did with the yeah. RUC in Northern Ireland, recreate it as the PSNI? You know, is anything like that even possible, do you think? I'm not quite sure what's possible, but it does seem to me common in, in common sense terms to make sense to break it down because it seems like no one's really accountable for mm. each area. You know, you never get to point your finger and say, this guy's doing a great job in management in the sort of deep state of the Met, as it were. Yeah. So, uh, if it was possible, and that's what I'd have liked to see in Sir Mark's turnaround plan, you know, something as radical like that. So London gets broken up and people become, in management, become accountable yeah. for their own figures. And you wrote about some some instances of just your own experiences of sort of walking around, cycling around London. Suddenly you come across a group of eco-activists or something and there's loads of police suddenly just standing around watching them. And I find it quite weird just to kind of try and marry up the two things that we know about. One, this kind of incredibly, you know, dark, misogynistic society that seems to exist inside various police yeah. stations in London. And then on the other hand, all of these kind of slightly woke police officers are going around, you know, dancing and skateboarding and handing out uh, cans of, of uh, you know, drink to people who, yeah. are, who are glued to the road. Yeah, I think they've sort of got the wrong idea. I think they're told, you know, to engage with the public, which makes perfect sense. But yet they're engaging with activists. Yeah. I mean, that's what cycling around all very well. But you're never going to get someone who's a you know ferocious anti-capitalist defund the policer no. to, to suddenly turn around and say the Met's great. And I think it sort of seems to me that they've forgotten that the public is you know the rest of us living in the city and not the people on protests yeah. in front of. Well, I think that's, generally speaking, a problem. I don't wish to perhaps widen the argument too much, but the problem with Britain at the moment is that the, sort of the, the clients, the customers, you and I, taxpayers, yeah. seem to have been forgotten in all of this. You know, we're doing a story this morning about a £7 million door that's going to be installed yeah. in the House of Lords. You know, there's no explanation as to how it's gone from £2 million to £7 million. It just has. And, you yeah. know, it's a door, for heaven's sake. You know, where's the money coming from? Exactly. And there's no accountability. So you just sort of you ask the question, don't you? And then you just move on to the next problem. There's mm. No one standing up and saying, OK, it was that guy and now he's going to leave. Right. Something like yeah. And everybody just kind of nods sagely when you go, well, you know, it's going to cost another 50 million. And you go, OK. And I was, always used to ask the question, well, why is it going to cost another 50 million? Nobody yeah. ever seems to have the answer to that. Yeah. You haven't found the answers about the door then? Uh, not yet. No. But apparently no. it's got something to do with security. Either. They're yeah. worried. They're worried that while they're fixing the door, people might be standing around outside waiting to get in, which would make oh. them targets for terrorists. But I mean, presumably that's why they've got armed police walking around the parliamentary yeah. state. I mean, call me old-fashioned. I don't see why it suddenly still goes from two million to seven million just because they have to stop people waiting. I think because it, you know, because no one's going to be no one's going to be on the line if um, if someone raises the question. Yeah. they're just going. to close over it and move on. So it's accountability, really, isn't it? It is, really, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Rishi Sunak's interview last night with uh, Piers Morgan. Uh, I want to play a little clip because he was asked the you know, very difficult question these days that politicians dread being asked, and it's that one about women. The world's most controversial question, bizarrely, has become, what is a woman? We know that Nicola Sturgeon can't answer that. We know Keir Starmer can't answer that. You're the British Prime Minister. What is a woman? Yeah, I, of course I know a woman is adult human female. Yeah, 
Of course he knows what a woman is. I mean, until this year, I think last year, actually, I don't think I even heard the phrase adult human female. But is no, it surprising to you that this has become such a ridiculous political football? Um, I, I don't think it's a political. I mean, yes, of course it's surprising. But it's become extremely important, hasn't it? It has. I mean, I don't it's, understand it's, why. Those words are extremely important. And I can't tell you how pleased I was to hear them. It's extraordinary that it should be hard to say those words, isn't yeah. it? But it, it becomes so. Well, it's become very difficult for anybody in the Labour Party to say those words. And there are some, yeah. and I'm one of them, I think, that believe that that might be a problem for Keir Starmer coming into the next election. Because while he's managed to get rid of the anti-Semitism criticisms of the Labour Party of recent years, you know, this is now the new kind of anti-Semitism for him, isn't it? Because he can't say it. Yeah, I, I mean, exactly. I don't know how much of a problem it will be, but it certainly should be a problem. It's mm. extremely important that he stands up and says those words. Yeah. It's... I, I mean, I'm, you know, I can't really believe how hard it is to say them. It, it's, it, it does. It, it, it does. It's happened so quickly, hasn't it? You know, just in a few years, suddenly. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I was talking to somebody about this just the other day. And as recently as I think two years ago, maybe two and a half years yeah. ago, this was never an issue. Nobody mentioned yeah. it. Nobody mentioned trans. Nobody mentioned transitioning. Nobody mentioned whether men yeah. should go to women's prisons. It seems to have become just this incredibly important subject, this cultural war yeah. over the course of the last sort of 12 months. But I think that's what's been dangerous about it is, is it's been growing underground like some sort of mushroom. Mm. And, uh, and we've all been able to see a lot of people have said, oh, come on, you're just making it up. There's no such thing as the cultural war. You know, don't be ridiculous. It's a non-issue. So, of course, by the time we all figure out it is an issue, it's spread everywhere in schools and politics, yeah. wherever. Right. It really is quite bizarre. Finally, yeah. um, it's been an interesting week at Talk TV. We had Rishi Sunak last night. Tonight, Boris Johnson's interviewed by Nadine Dorries. Um, does the Tory party have a hope in hell of winning another election at this point? I'm honestly not qualified to say. Um, <laughs> I wonder if it deserves to. Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think the Labour Party might deserve a go, actually. I mean, in fact, I was calling for them to be given, just given it um, back in September of last year because it was such a mess. It was just like, they might as well have a go, see what it's like. And then if the Tory yeah. party have got any brains, they can re regroup, get themselves together and come back in, in a couple of years. I feel that's what a lot of them are thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So they're out of the job for a while and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. What would you ask Boris Johnson if he was sitting in front of you? Um... <laughs> I'd ask him if he really fancies another go at being Prime Minister. I'd mm. like to know if actually thinking that is possible. I think he does, you know. I think, I, I, I think people like Boris Johnson always want to be Prime Minister, no matter what has happened in the past. Yeah, it's in his, in his bones, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Mary, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Mary Wakefield, Commissioning Editor at The Spectator, uh, with a few ideas for you to mull over, to think about, because that's what we do here. We like to supply you not just with information, not just with entertainment, but with thoughts that might keep you interested in what happens next. Because tonight, with Boris Johnson, you'll find out whether there is a man who harbours a great desire to get back into power. You might be surprised at some of the things he says. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, Roy says this, Lord Basil Fawlty of Torquay would get the new security door installed for a really cheap price by Mr O'Reilly with his servant Manuel supervising. Well, that's certainly a blast from the past, Roy, isn't it? Yeah, can you imagine? Uh, I'll have a crack at it, I think was uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, Mr O'Reilly mantra, wasn't it? Uh, Trust was all action, no talk, uh, says anti-woke. Uh, but unfortunately, Sunak is all talk and no action. I think I preferred Liz Truss. 
Um, and Chrissy says, brilliant interview last night with the Prime Minister. Rishi was articulate and serious and Piers asked just the right questions. So glad we have Talk TV. Well, I'm also so glad we have Talk TV. And for your delectation tonight, we've got Nadine Dorries interviewing Boris Johnson. Nadine will be on with me a little bit later on in the show to tell us what she made uh, of the former Prime Minister uh, and what he actually had to say. But let's talk for more uh, this morning about British Gas because yesterday uh, we spoke to the head of the Times investigation team uh, who did a... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Brilliant story yesterday, Paul Morgan Bentley, uh, on what British Gas was up to, breaking into people's houses, particularly the houses that were housing people who were vulnerable and making them, uh, inst- making them accept the installation uh, of a pay meter, which meant that basically you have to pay up front for any of the energy that you use. Now, a lot of people, interestingly enough, kind of reacted differently to the way that I expected them to on this particular situation, because a lot of people said, hang on a minute, These are surely people who have not paid their bills. These are people uh, who owe money. Uh, These are people who actually cost the rest of us money because we have to pick up the shortfall for the bills that they don't pay. Now, some of that is partially true. However, what is also true, and we found this out from Paul Morgan Bentley, was that effectively, you know, it's one thing to go targeting people who are willfully not paying the bill and who never pay the bill and who actively avoid paying the bill. And it's another thing to go after people who are clearly in a very, very difficult position, either because of their personal circumstances, of their recent personal circumstances, or uh, because the price of energy has just gone so sky high that they simply can't afford to pay. We saw uh, yesterday uh, with Paul uh, Morgan Bentley some of the work that he had done, including uh, when he went undercover with some of these companies that were actually installing these meters and basically forcing their way into people's houses in order to do that. Uh, We can see that uh, just now as you're watching. And he later went back as a journalist to talk to some of the people, the victims, who had been put in these situations. And clearly what's been going on uh, has been unacceptable. Um, The uh, Ofgem regulator has now got involved. British gas has been banned from force-fitting these new meters. That's the front page of The Times this morning. Jonathan Brearley, who's the chief executive of the regulator, said this, uh, that he would not hesitate to take the strongest action. Uh, We've ordered immediate action to protect British gas customers. And British Gas, I think, have said that they are not going to do any more of these forced installations of metres for at least the foreseeable future while winter is ongoing. There's clearly a problem here. Um, And the thing that I find absolutely and utterly reprehensible is that the price of gas is many, uh, for many people driving this particular problem. But let's talk to Catherine Porter, who's an independent energy consultant, and to see just how much of a problem this actually is for ordinary people. Catherine, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, I was quite surprised yesterday at some people's reaction to this. Um, but also I kind of understood it. Many people were saying, yeah, but surely these are people who are recidivists. You know, they've had plenty of opportunities to pay their bills. They've refused point blank. There have been court cases held. There have been warrants issued. So, you know, the process is not illegal as such, but, but clearly it's being misused. Otherwise, Ofchem wouldn't be behaving in the way that they are. Oh, OK. There's quite a lot to unpack there. There is. Um, so the Times article really, I think, highlighted three things that went on. The first is that Centrica had, for British Gas, for whatever reason, passed on the details of vulnerable consumers to this collections agency called Avato Financial Services. Mm. Now, um, what we don't know is uh, at what point that happened, whether that whether British Gas had been engaging with those customers and they'd refused to engage, whether this was the end of a long process or not, because I'm even where customers are vulnerable, uh, suppliers do have the right to install prepayment meters. It, they just can't that just can't be the first thing that they do. They need to have really engaged mm. with those consumers first and try to support them. Yes, so didn't have that context there. The second thing is that um, it appears that these warrants are being issued in bulk by the courts. Uh, now, this was news to me. I had assumed that when a court issues a warrant giving uh, a bailiff or someone similar uh, the powers of entry into somebody's home, that each of those cases had been determined uh, on a case-by-case basis. Um, so I think that's quite problematic. Um, I think most people would assume that there was scrutiny in the court system to discover there isn't is something mm. I think that needs to be addressed. Right. And the third issue is the behaviour of this particular collections company. Looking at that Times footage, it's quite um, disturbing mm. that glee that some of these individuals were expressing at breaking into people's houses and and the sort of lack of humanity about that. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the fault of British Gas or any of the other suppliers, uh, several of whom use the same company, as I understand it. So I I think the situation is a good deal more nuanced than um, is being presented. I think that's true. But I I, I guess, you know, there will be people who um, uh, willfully do not pay bills and who consistently are, um, you know, um, in in difficulties because of the fact that they're simply, you know, incapable of running their own household. But I think the context has changed clearly because of the cost of the of the of the supplied energy, you know, because when supplies were costing a quarter of what they are now you could probably make that argument more firmly that these people just need to be, you know, somehow punished for not paying for their uh, their electricity or their gas. And so you have to make them pay up front. I get that. But I think nowadays, because it's so expensive, there's obviously more people affected by it, presumably. Well, there is, unfortunately. I think there's a third group of people who are genuinely struggling but not engaging with their supplier. So all the supplier sees is somebody not paying their bill, but they have no real understanding why, because those people are really kind of burying their heads in the sand and ignoring communications. Um, And, and, you know, suppliers not unreasonably lose patience with that. So, um, yes, there is much more hardship. But the question is, who should be responsible for covering that? Uh, the profit margins in the domestic supply segment are extremely low. I mean, we saw half of the market exit in late 2021 um, because the profit margins are so thin. So suppliers don't really have that much ability to absorb these types of losses. And it's why they have this right to install prepayment meters. And, you know, we hear these stories about companies like Shell earning record profits. And people get quite annoyed about that. But for the most part, the companies that are earning these record profits are not the same companies that sell gas and electricity to our homes. Shell actually does have a small um, supply business, which is trying to um, potentially sell because it's been making such high losses. Mm. Um, So 
this isn't a straightforward thing. I mean, it's a little bit like complaining that Tesco isn't cutting its food prices when you're hearing that Next is making record profits selling clothes. We're not comparing apples and apples. And I think Ofgem really doesn't help the situation because it perpetuates this narrative that suppliers can't be trusted. If you look at the, the language that Ofgem uses when it talks about this part of the market, it's always you know clamping down on people. Uh, this is a very um, hostile regulatory environment which Ofgem has created. And it really deters good quality companies from wanting to enter the sector. Um, you know, people like Shell are wanting to leave. Uh, supermarkets flirted with the, with entering domestic supply and they've left. And there's been no entry from companies like technology companies that everybody really thought, you know, with the uh, with the growth in networked homes and connected appliances, that that would be a natural space for technology companies yeah. to enter. They've shown but, no... But what you're describing, Catherine, it seems to me, is a market which is completely and utterly failing everybody at every point. You know, it's not helping the suppliers. It's not helping the people who deliver the energy. It's not helping the consumers. It's not helping um, even the wholesalers. So surely a, a root and branch kind of reorganisation of it would be what Ofgem should be looking at doing rather than having to take sort of, you know, retrograde action to stop people's houses from being broken into. Well, I would actually argue that this shouldn't be with Ofgem at all. Ofgem is, is I'm really primarily regulating uh, gas and electricity network. So this is a regulated asset base mm. type businesses and yeah. generators. Now, suppliers have been lumped in with that, but the retail supply business is essentially a virtual business. It has a lot more in common with retail banking than it does with networks or um, generation. Mm. And Ofgem is actually now trying to introduce the type of uh, prudential regulation that the Financial Conduct Authority introduced into the banking sector back in 2008. So I actually think that this entire segment of the energy market should be moved mm. into the financial services sector because these companies are primarily handling money. They're not handling energy. Right. Um, other people do the energy, uh, the physical logistics. The suppliers don't do that. No. So I would I would actually prefer to see that move over to the Financial Conduct Authority with a completely clean slate in terms of uh, the regulatory attitude and to have the regulation focusing on financial resilience, um, not, you know, um, behaving with due skill, care and diligence, behaving with integrity, all of those principles of business that the Financial Conduct Authority imposes on the companies it regulates. Mm. There is really no comparison within the energy market. And I think that's wrong. Mm. And also the energy market itself doesn't really reflect the prices that are going on inside its own market. You know, because what we don't ever see uh, is when the wholesale price of gas goes down or the wholesale price of oil goes down, uh, do we see that reflected in any way, shape or form in what we end up paying for as it comes out of our taps or out of our, um, you know, plugs? It's, it's just kind of a mad system which doesn't appear to have anybody um, looking at it and saying the things that you've just said. Well, I think the issue with uh, passing through price reductions is a timing one. I'm now, because I, the price cap dominates... Uh, the retail energy market. Um, all of the suppliers have been told very strongly by Ofgem that they're expected to conduct their gas and electricity procurement in line with the way that the price cap is calculated, which means doing it all in advance. So, of course, you get a delay in price increases um, when the market's going up, mm. but then you also get a delay, and we're seeing that at the moment. So, since the end of December, since the middle of December, we've seen gas prices falling 
we won't see that come through into the price cap until April at the earliest. Mm. It's a mad, mad system, as we said. But great to talk to you, Catherine. Thank you very much indeed. Catherine Porter, independent energy consultant, saying a lot of sensible things, actually. We'll have to get Catherine back on uh, to try and reconstruct what it is that's wrong uh, with the gas markets, particularly in the energy sector, uh, because electricity is no better either. There's all manner of madness going on, much of it driven, of course, by the dreaded net zero. Uh, we'll come on to more of that coming up. Uh, but later uh, in the show, we'll also be asking you how well you know your neighbours, because apparently one in three people in this country doesn't even know the names of their next door neighbours. Are you one of them? Do you not know who they are? Do you know not what their names are? Or can you not even ask them? We shall see. Coming up, though, Nick Freeman is going to be here, criminal defence lawyer. He normally talks about motoring and motorists, but today he's going to be talking about dangerous dogs. There's been a lot of big stories in recent weeks of terrible attacks and deaths caused by dangerous dogs. He's got an answer, or at least a suggestion, as to what we should be doing. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots going on between now and one o'clock, of course. The Dean Dorries is going to be here to tell us about her big interview with Boris Johnson tonight. The first time uh, she's out there with Friday nights with Nadine uh, coming right after Plank of the Week, which goes out at seven o'clock tonight, of course, starring myself uh, and Jeremy Kyle. An awful lot of plankery going on this week as well, so you don't want to miss that. That's available right here on Talk TV. Uh, of course, it's Sky 522, Virgin 606, Freeview 237, FreeSat 217. One seven, uh, or via YouTube, or on the Talk TV app. Let's right now, though, talk to our good friend Adam Coleman uh, over in the US of A, columnist of the New York Post. Uh, there's plenty going on over there, not least, of course, uh, some kind of spy balloon that seems to be floating around over the United States of America. What's going on? Adam, a very good morning to you. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me again. Are you, are you feeling in any way put upon? Are you feeling nervous? Are you worried that these Chinese <laughs> uh, spy satellites are floating about all over the place? What's it, what's it doing? Where is it? Uh, you know what? Uh, this is actually something I just became aware of this morning. Right. So I don't even I don't have too many details on it just yet. Uh, but I'm actually more worried about spy software. Uh, you know, that's in everybody's phones via TikTok. Yes. Uh, so I, that's where my concern is, because they have uh, way more information. Probably yeah, I was going to say they can probably they can probably get a lot more information about you from your phone oh, yeah. than they can from putting up some kind of balloon, which appears to be flying right. uh, somewhere between um, Canada and Billings, Montana. Um, so it's kind of out. I mean, there's not a lot to see in Montana. I've been to Montana. I mean, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't bother spying on them if I were them. <laughs> yeah, unless they're maybe spying on something agricultural. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of lot of, uh, lot of yeah. horse ranches out that way. But unless you're interested in yeah. the horse business, I wouldn't have thought uh, there's there's much point. But let's talk about a couple of other things that are going on over there. Obviously, the big story all week has been this terrible uh, police um, brutality story from Tennessee. Um, mm -hmm. How is how is that going? Because it seems to have split uh, not only the American community, but the black community as well. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting situation because, uh, you know, in the past, they, the media has been able to shape it as a, a race issue because uh, maybe the cop was white and the perpetrator was black. But this is a weird one, you know, for the media to handle, because while it was a negative uh, outcome that happened uh, and it's something that shouldn't be tolerated in our country, the people who perpetrated it look just like the perpetrator. Yeah. Right. They're all the same race. Yeah. And so how do we spin this? And so that's why you're hearing from uh, basically progressives who act as neo-Marxists, this concept of white supremacy being at hand somehow in the police uh, system 
Uh, and that's what led for these five individual officers to beat this man the way they did. So, you know, they're they're bending over backwards to find some sort of way. Al Sharpton says, well, we all know that if the, the perpetrator was white, they wouldn't have done this. Do we know this? You know, it's almost like he's never heard of Tony Tempa, who's a white man who had his uh, a knee put, placed on his neck, just like George Floyd, right. who subsequently died. Um, you know, so police brutality shouldn't be tolerated no matter what skin or color um, of the officer or the perpetrator. And I think that our media constantly is looking for some racial angle because it's uh, easily to it's easy to sensationalize. It's easy to sell um, and it's easy to divide people. Yeah. And so the latest situation from there is that it hasn't escalated, I suppose, into into quite what we saw um, with the Floyd situation. Um, and has that been down to a slightly better behavior by the politicians down there? Possibly so. Um, like I said, I think it's a weak narrative to gather um, many people to, to get involved in some sort of negative way. Mm. But I, I do want to point out that I think there is a difference between people who want to legitimately protest. You know, they have every right to protest the actions of the Memphis Police Department. That is a more than worthy cause to do so. Um, but what ends up happening is that there are opportunists who take advantage of that situation to cause chaos. Some of them are from the, the city that it happens, but oftentimes mm. they come from neighboring cities, neighboring states, um, you know, from uh, even uh, in many cases, other sides of the country. Yeah. Uh, because they know something's about to happen. That's what happened in Minnesota after George Floyd. So um, I think because the narrative wasn't that strong for it to be a racial incident, it's a police incident. Yes. Um, then, you know, it, that's why it didn't galvanize as many people. But that is the problem with the race business, isn't it? It is a business for a lot of people and they see an opportunity to make money and suddenly there right. they are, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I've said it before. Al Sharpton is an ambulance chaser. Yeah. Um, you know, just in a, in a race sense. So I can't I, believe Al Sharpton's still yeah. going because I was living in New York when Al Sharpton <laughs> kind of was was making his bones back in the sort of mid to late 80s, you know, before Bonfire of Vanities was written. I mean, this was a guy uh, who was a firebrand even then. I mean, I can't believe he's still doing mm -hmm. it. Yeah, well, he lost some weight, so he's in better shape. So maybe he can <laughs> keep, keep going with the race hustle. But yeah, um, yeah it doesn't surprise me. And and I think what's what's really essential to understand about Al Sharpton is that he bumps elbows with the Democrat elite. Yeah. Um, and that's what allows for him to keep going. That's why he's on MSNBC. That's why he has such a, a loud voice as a quote unquote representation of the black community, um, because the Democrat establishment like going to him. He's corrupt, mm. to be honest with you. Yeah. Interesting. Speaking of which, let's talk about Hunter Biden. Um, he's taken it upon himself to decide to sue a few people, which is interesting, because up until now, as far as I'm aware, he hasn't actually held his hands up for anything, has he? No, not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I find this actually funny that Hunter Biden wants to sue anybody. Right. Um, you know, the I mean, if he, I mean, in, some... in, in my old days yeah. in newspapers, you'd go, great, bring it on. Let's get Hunter Biden into a courtroom. Let's put him on the stand and let's <laughs> ask him a few questions. Well, you know, listen, Hunter isn't the smartest person uh, in our country, <laughs> despite what Joe Biden says, uh, you know, which is a great quote, Joe Biden saying that Hunter is the smartest person he, he's ever met. Um, <laughs> so I guess he hasn't been around that many smart people. Um, but yeah, you wouldn't want to do something like this if you're Hunter Biden. You open yourself up. Um, but 
yeah, that this is his prerogative. This is what he wants to do. And I don't think it's a good strategy. Yeah. I mean, he's basically arguing that the person from the computer repair shop who passed the computer on to eventually the New York Post um, should not mm -hmm. have done so. <laughs> I mean, well, every, he's not okay. saying he's not saying that anything on there isn't real. He's just going, they shouldn't yeah. have done it. Yeah, right. It's like um, it's like getting caught uh, breaking the law, but saying, well, the cop wasn't supposed to be there right. <laughs> to catch me. Yeah. It's like, well, you shouldn't be breaking the law. Yeah. How I dare mean, he? Everybody knows when you bring when you bring some sort of item to a repair shop, they always have some sort of uh, policy in regards to how long it can be there for. So he extended his policy and it becomes theirs. Like he obviously tried to contact him and, you know, Hunter's a mess, to be honest with you. Yeah. So he was able to reach him. Hunter likely forgot all about it um, and probably was reminded about it once it hit the media. Right. So, yeah, he probably's going, I wonder what yeah. I'd have done with that laptop. You know, I forgot where I put it. I gave it to yeah, a guy exactly. in a shop. <laughs> you know, brilliant. Yeah. Well, just, to, just to, to, to round things off, just to cheer you up, I don't know whether you've noticed uh, this particular video that's been doing the rounds, Adam, but uh, here's his dad, President Joe Biden, uh, explaining something about equality for us. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than, more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in, the, in my administration are women. <laughs> well, that's a good thing to know, isn't it? Well, at least he didn't uh, pull a Mitt Romney and say uh, how many women are in his binder. Uh, <laughs> Just incredible. So, uh, yeah, that's our president. Yeah, that's him. Good to know that he's still consistent. But Adam, listen, good to see you. Thanks very yeah. much indeed. Adam Coleman there, uh, from the New York Post talking to us about uh, uh, the rate, the problems of being in the Biden family. Uh, poor old Joe Biden um, says that half the women in his cabinet are women. Um, although, of course, some wags were pointing out that at least one of them isn't. But that's another story altogether. Uh, how about this from uh, Steve in Stoke, who seems a particularly miserable individual. He says, what sort of fat weirdo finds a new news agent because the guy was friendly to you, goes to show what a miserable git you are? Steve, I'm so glad you've taken the time to send that to me, and especially since you've actually spent good money doing it. Uh, it's 50 pence, I think, that's cost you on your uh, telephone exchange scenario. Well done. Thank you very much indeed. Coming up, we're going to talk to Nadine Dorries, who's going to be talking later to Boris Johnson. Uh, and don't forget... Just before her show at 7 o'clock, it's Plank of the Week. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, coming up at 1 o'clock, of course, Ian Collins will be here to tell us what he's uh, got for us, taking us through the afternoon. Uh, Vanessa Feltz from 4, Plank of the Week from 7, and then a new show tonight uh, from 8 o'clock. Uh, it's Friday night with Nadine, and with a special guest tonight, Nadine Dorries, of course, um, um, Conservative Party MP, but also now Talk TV presenter. She's got Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister, on with her, and I'm delighted to say Nadine uh, joins us now. Nadine, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Now, you've made quite a few waves already with this first interview. I mean, the, the, the great problem, of course, with this is that it's such a good a name to get up first. You know, what are you going to do next week, as we say? <laughs> Well, that's been my worry, Mike. <laughs> I didn't think it was yours as well. Yeah, no, absolutely right. But listen, welcome to the to the team. I've seen you over in the in the West London studios a couple of times. How did you find it all? Because obviously you've done plenty of uh, of interviews in your time, but now suddenly you're on the other side of the microphone, if you like. Um, did you find it a little bit unusual, a bit daunting? Yeah, um, both of those. Um, I I just want to crawl under a table and hide, to be honest, Mike. <laughs> I'm so out of my comfort zone that it's painful. And it's like I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best to 
to not be daunted by it, but it's like hard. Yeah. So you're right. But you see, so when you say I'm used to being interviewed, yeah, you know, I've been in politics 25 years in total. I am used to being interviewed, but it's something I've stopped doing recently mm. because I don't enjoy it. I hate being interviewed. And I've got to the point in my life now where I think, well, I don't need to do it. Why yeah. am I doing it? Yeah. Why am I subjecting myself to people like you? Yeah, well, I and know. So I don't do it anymore. But you see, um, I, I like annoying people, you see, and I think that's the thing. I mean, one of the things, one of the great virtues of the, the job that I, that I have is that is that people can, can be really annoyed by you. They can really hate you without even knowing you. I mean, you, you probably know very much what it's like to get lots of anonymous abuse. I mean, I just got some just now for telling a story about myself. People go, what sort of an idiot does that? Well, I'm, like, I'm just trying to give you a, a sort of you know an, an in a window into what sort of person i am if you don't like me i don't care really exactly you don't have to watch you that's the interesting thing isn't it <laughs> they don't like you they don't have to follow you they don't have to watch you yeah they are just some kind of you know people who just just love to complain don't yes. they but mike i can promise you i could lay a bet with you that the kind of abuse you get doesn't even hit the scale on the level of abuse that MPs get. No, I'm Doesn't sure. Doesn't even, even scratch the surface. Some of it, I mean, there's been this horrible story this week about a Wolverhampton MP. He's had to move his whole family, his whole house, mm. massed gangs gathering outside, his children being targeted yeah. outside school. You know, it is just on another level. We've had Joe Cox, we've had David Amos, mm. you know, we've had an MP attacked in his surgery where his assistant died yeah. by someone attacking him with a, a samurai sword. It's just... It's becoming a very dangerous world. The abuse, which happens online, is becoming normalised in life. People are yes. transferring online to taking that to what they do in their everyday life now. Yes. So it is a different world we're living in in terms of abuse. It is interesting, isn't it? Because we talked about this last week when Matt Hancock was accosted on the tube. And, you know, we used to, I said to somebody on the talk when I was working on it that we used to say that, you know, people behave on social media completely differently to the way they behave in real life. They would never do that in real life. But now they're starting to. It's worrying, isn't it? No, I think we've been a living experiment, mm. uh, the, the generations that are living now at this time. And I think what happened was, yeah, it was very much, you know, a young bloke in his mum's upstairs in the bedroom, in his mum's house, in his underpants on a keyboard, yeah. you know, late at night, firing off the abuse. Stuff that they would never say in a, in a normal day-to-day mm. -day conversation with anybody. But I think we've been through a process of, of living through that for the past 15 years. And now we're going into the stage of the online internet enabled world experiment where it's become a it's become imbued in people, the mm. style and the manner and the way of talking. And abuse has become so familiar. And so those taboos of not stepping into saying that because it didn't feel right. Mm. Now to people it does feel right because they say it see it so often online and we 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 jumped the shark yeah. we've gone into the in the place of where people talk like they do online they say what they say online to other people and we're seeing it all the time ironically in social media clips yes well let's have a look at the interview that you've done uh, which goes out tonight eight o'clock friday night with nadine uh, here's nadine talking to boris johnson so if you're stuck in the lift who would you rather be stuck in the lift with keir starmer or nicola sturgeon oh brother um uh i th you know um well, actually, you know, it's like all these things, and I'm sure the viewers would, would understand this. Both individuals are actually far nicer and more amusing than you, than you might otherwise imagine. And, you know, the, the kind of hostility that you see between politicians um, on screen is, is, is 
often not reflected in, in real life. Um, I think, provided it was a really, sh you know, provided it wasn't like 50 floors, I, I wouldn't mind either. <laughs> Boris Johnson, um, you'll tell us, and Nadine, you know him probably a lot better than most people do. Um, a much misunderstood character, is he? Oh, I'd say very much so. And the reason why he said 50 floors was not because he wouldn't want to be stuck in the lift with them. Because Boris is not your small talk man. He's he's actually quite. I know these people have it's very difficult to believe, but a lot of that, a lot of the persona that you see of Boris, I think hides what is behind, which yeah. is actually quite a shy man. Yeah. And to be stuck in a social situation of having to make small talk for fifty floors in an elevator with two other people, I think he would find excruciating. <laughs> That's not to say he's not an amazing raconteur and conversationalist. He is. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the reason why he would die at the prospect of 50 mm. floors. Because he's not hes not the man that he's made out to be. You know, every, it's not just me. Everybody who knows him well um, would tell you that the person that is painted by much of the media because of Brexit, mm. because of COVID, for, other things, for many other reasons, is not the person who actually exists. And the one thing I always say is in our last cabinet meeting, the very last thing that was said to Boris was my cabinet minister, who is well known, but will remain nameless. I'm not going to reveal um, their name. But what they said was the problem is, Boris, you're kind, but you're too kind. You're loyal, but you're too loyal. And you're very often nice, but too nice. And that, that's been part of the problem. Mm. And people never see that side of Boris, but it very much exists. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll see a bit of that tonight. And I mean, nice, but too nice, perhaps for... Um, the Conservative Party as well, which doesn't seem to be particularly united around anything at the moment. I mean, Rishi Sunak uh, was on with Piers last night talking about wanting everything to be fair for people. And people asked, um, Piers asked him what, his, what Sunakism is and what he stands for. And I think uh, for a lot of people now, they don't know what the Conservative Party stands for. I think they sort of knew what Boris stood for. Well, exactly, quite. Um, so with Boris at the helm, they knew exactly where he stood on so many issues. There was no doubt. You know, he's someone who's, who is not happy unless he's um, driving forward. And what we saw in the three, I mean, sadly, COVID, you know, stopped much of what he was frustratingly for him, which is why he hated the restrictions so much. COVID stopped so much of what he wanted to achieve. But he's very much, a, you know, you knew Boris stood for Brexit and you knew he stood for making sure that Brexit dividend worked and that we saw... Um, a better society and a, a better England, a more ambitious, enthusiastic, positive England as a result of it, UK as a result of it. But we would, apologies for saying England, obviously it's the UK, um, but he wanted to you know, charge through and make sure that he got those benefits. And I think that was his big frustration. Mm. People knew where he stood in that. They knew that, you know, locking down was the last thing he ever wanted to do. And and they knew that his ambitions were for growth, big infrastructure projects, low tax. Interestingly, I know he is a low tax, high growth uh, believer. Interestingly, of course, Rishi Sunak was his chancellor for those three years who prevented that from happening. Mm. So we're in a yeah, very interesting place at the moment in the party. Indeed. And do you think he'd like the job back, finally? Uh, you'd never, ever get him to, to say that. He... Um, I don't, you know, so even us probably, I can say I've probably spent about 10, 12 hours in his company since he stood down. And I I couldn't get him drawn on that. Mm. So. Mm. 
Interesting. Well, listen, we look forward to seeing it tonight, eight o'clock, and, um, you know, watch it from behind the sofa if you're worried, but I'm sure it'll be absolutely fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it'll be absolutely fine. Plank of the Week's on before, so uh, I can assure you that Boris Johnson is not Plank of the Week this week, so that's good. Um, good to see you, Nadine. Thank you very much, Nadine. Friday night with Nadine Dorries, uh, coming up tonight at 8pm. Don't miss it. Uh, this is the only place to be. It's Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.